1854. The quiet of the darkened corridors of Scutari Hospital is broken by the occasional groans and coughs of the wounded soldiers lying in their iron beds. Many of the men lie unable to sleep, the pain of their injuries keeping them awake. It's difficult to have hope in a place like this. But when the tapping of the footsteps and the flicker of the lamplight announce the lady with the lamp making her rounds, a flicker of hope radiates through the men on the ward. The lady in question was Florence Nightingale, and through her work, she revolutionised healthcare. Hi, I'm Shane Lee, and this is the Enduring Lives podcast, where we explore the lives and enduring legacies of the world's most extraordinary people. In this episode, we are exploring the life of Florence Nightingale, the lady with the lamp. If you want to find all the previous episodes of this podcast, or if you want to see the show notes with sources for this episode, head over to EnduringLives.com. And if you have five minutes to let us know what you think by leaving a review of the podcast wherever you're listening, please do, it would really help the show. Join me as we explore the enduring life of Florence Nightingale. Florence Nightingale, the founder of modern nursing, rallied against the social conventions of the day to fulfil her ambition of caring for the sick and unwell in society, revolutionising healthcare in the process. Her impact on public health is still felt to this day. All nurses take the Nightingale Pledge or variants of it when they become nurses. International Nurses' Day is celebrated on her birthday each year. Her ideas and designs for the construction of hospitals are still in effect today. It wasn't just healthcare that she impacted. She was also a pioneer in the field of statistics. Perhaps her most well-known contribution to statistics is the polar area diagram, which can be used to better visualise trends in data. She used these diagrams to communicate the impact of sanitation on the number of deaths in hospitals. Thanks to this and her meticulous data collecting, she also pioneered in more sophisticated, evidence-based decision-making, which saved countless lives. Florence Nightingale rose to fame during her time volunteering as a nurse in Scutari in the Crimean War, where the image of her as the lady with the lamp was formed. Despite the army's initial hostility towards her and the other female nurses that accompanied her because of their gender, Florence became the first woman to be honoured by the military when she was listed in the general orders. And towards the end of her life, she was the first woman to receive the Order of Merit, which is an award for distinguished service to the military. 
She was also the first non-royal woman to have a statue of her constructed in London. And she was the first woman other than the Queen to be featured on British banknotes. Today, there are numerous hospitals named after her, and her influence is still being felt to this day. Few people know the story of Florence Nightingale beyond her enduring image as the Lady with the Lamp. So today, it's time to explore her life. Florence Nightingale was born on the 12th of May, 1820, in the Italian city of Florence. And yes, she was indeed named after the city. Her parents had formed with this as the year previously, Florence's older sister, Francis Parthenope, was born in Naples, and the ancient Greek name for Naples was, as you might be able to guess, Parthenope. William Nightingale and his wife Frances, who mainly went by the name Fanny, were touring Europe as part of their long honeymoon. They were married two years previously in 1818. Their marriage came shortly after the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, and they took full advantage of the recent peace to explore Europe. The length of their tour can also be explained by the fact that the Nightingales didn't have a house in England to return to. It wasn't until 1821 that the Nightingales returned to England and moved into Lee Hurst, a large country estate in Derbyshire with an active lead smelter on the grounds which William Nightingale had recently inherited. Florence became ill after moving into Leehurst, and she was a sickly child, suffering ill health throughout her early years. Many historians have speculated that this may have been related to that active lead smelter on the family's estate, but we don't know for sure. The Nightingale family was very wealthy. Shortly after moving into Leehurst, they were looking for a second family home further south, where they could spend the winter. In 1825, when Florence was five years old, the family were spending their time between Leehurst and their newly acquired country estate in Hampshire called Emberley Park. In the summer of 1827, when Florence was seven years old, her mother hired a governess to help educate Florence and Parthenope. She was called Miss Sarah Christie and she educated the girls in a number of subjects, including Latin, music, and the Bible. Miss Christie appears to have been more strict with Florence than she was with Parthenope, and after Miss Christie arrived, Florence reportedly became more withdrawn. Florence herself was to later state that Miss Christie did not understand children, and would shut her up for weeks at a time. A few years later, in 1831, Miss Christie was married to a German widower. This meant that the education of the girls had to be reconsidered. Eventually their father decided that he would educate the girls. William Nightingale's method for teaching the girls was different to the rote learning and rigid expectations of Miss Christie. William taught the girls to think for themselves. At the time, it was rare for girls to be taught Latin, Greek and mathematics. Florence excelled at them all, which led to some jealousy from her sister Parthenope. Florence had a particular flair for languages. While it is difficult to learn French and Latin as she did, it was even more difficult to learn ancient Greek. Florence was so good at Greek, 
that in later life, Benjamin Jowett, a professor of Greek at Oxford, with whom Florence corresponded for about 30 years, asked her for comments on his translations of Plato. This unusual education was to play a key role in Florence's later life, particularly her aptitude with mathematics, which would help her use statistics to improve public health. Stories abound about Florence's early displays of her desire to heal. Florence would lie dolls in a row, like in a hospital, and put bandages on them. And in 1836, when Florence was 16 years old, she saved a dog's life. She was near the grounds of Emberley Park when she came across a shepherd who was about to kill his farm dog because it had broken its leg. Florence insisted on treating the animal, so she wrapped bandages around its leg and attempted to reduce the swelling. By treating the dog, Florence prevented the shepherd killing it because the dog could continue working. Early the next year, a flu epidemic took over Emberley Park and the surrounding hamlets. Florence took it upon herself to help nurse the sick villagers and the inhabitants of Emberley Park. Shortly after this, in February 1837, still aged 16, there came a moment which may have changed the course of Florence's life. She was at Emberley Park when, as she would later privately note, she heard the voice of God calling her to his service. From that point on, Florence was determined to heal and help others. At that time, it was expected that a girl of Florence's social standing would debut, then marry, then become a wife and a mother. Florence was to rebel against both her family's and society's expectations. But not yet. For now, she would keep her desire secret. The Nightingale family were planning a grand tour of Europe in the summer of 1837, and in September they set off from Emberley towards Southampton to sail across the English Channel to the continent. Both Florence and Parthenope couldn't wait to explore Europe. It would give them a chance to further hone their skills in French, Italian and German. On this trip we see an aspect of Florence that would later be instrumental in her success as a nurse and a public health reformer. She recorded meticulous details and statistics about the trip. What time the family departed from each location, what time they arrived, how long they travelled for. All recorded in Florence's diary. This attention to detail was one of the factors that made her name. The Nightingale family returned from their tour on the 6th of April, 1839. Florence was starting to get restless with the life she was expected to lead. She still kept quiet about her calling, but she needed something to occupy her. Mathematics was one such distraction to which she could engage her ceaseless mind. She had taken to studying Euclid's elements with her cousin Beatrice. And in 1840, Florence's Aunt May wrote to Florence's mother to see if she would have any objections to getting Florence a mathematical tutor. She did not. But she did object to the idea of Florence studying mathematics when a girl of her standing 
should be dedicating time to practising the piano or needlework. Florence had become deeply engrossed in mathematics. Her love of the subject would be very useful to her in later life when studying and communicating issues of public health. During this period of mathematical study, in the summer of 1840, age 20, Florence received her first offer of marriage from an aristocratic chess player who later became an MP, called Marmaduke Wilville. She said no. Florence had no desire to marry. There was only one point in her life when she gave pause to consider marrying Richard Monckton Mills after several of his marriage proposals. She had no regrets for not accepting Marmaduke's offer. Later that year, in a letter to Pathenope, Florence said she had heard some things which make me sorry for him. Glad for myself. In 1843, Florence received another offer of marriage. This time it was from her cousin, Henry Nicholson. Her rejection of him was more consequential than that of Marmaduke, as the Nicholsons were family and Mr and Mrs Nicholson were offended by Florence's rejection of their son. This fractured the relationship between the Nightingales and the Nicholsons. The next year, in another devastating blow to the family, Florence announced that she wanted to train as a nurse. In the Victorian era, women of Florence's class were expected to be obedient wives and be involved in the running of the home and social events. Florence's desire was devastating to her family because this was a complete rebellion of societal expectations. To be a nurse was considered a lowly calling, equivalent to that of a domestic servant. Florence's mother could not bear Florence becoming a nurse. William Nightingale, her father, even went so far as to say that she was selfish and vain for wanting to become a nurse. Florence did not take this rejection well. She was despondent. In her private notebook, she wrote how she didn't want to live anymore. This despair continued throughout the year. In December, she wrote that her hopes for this winter are gone, and all my plans destroyed. This morning, I felt as if my soul would pass away in tears. I live in utter loneliness, in a bitter passion of tears and agony of solitude. Florence could not bear to live the life that her family wanted for her. She wanted to do her bit for the world. Despite her despair, she did not give up. In 1846, she wrote to her father, imploring him to consider the possibility that she might go down to St Stephen's Hospital in Dublin to train as a nurse. She was not allowed to go. Florence reacted to this by becoming more withdrawn. She would keep up appearances with her family for the bare minimum amount of time. She would then retreat to her room as soon as possible. But again, she had not given up hope of her dream. The need to escape the drudgery was a source of despair for Florence, but it also appears to have engendered in her a redoubling of effort. Behind closed doors, 
she was corresponding about public health and hospitals, and she was getting up early each morning to study and learn more about healthcare. In June 1846, Florence was continuing to obsess about health, and she managed to visit the newly opened German Hospital in London. This would have been the first time that Florence got to tour and learn about a hospital firsthand. At this time, hospitals were mainly for the poorest in society. The rich would have people care for them at home. The German hospital was created to treat poor German-speaking immigrants, but it also treated poor English people. This was the early days of public health care, and this hospital was nothing compared to modern hospitals. It only had 12 beds when it was founded in 1845. Later in October 1846, Florence was once again being pursued by another gentleman suitor, Richard Monckton Mills. He was a baron, and he had been a member of parliament, and he was a supporter of women's rights. Over the next few years, Richard was to propose to Florence on numerous occasions. As with previous suitors, she said no. But unlike her previous suitors, Florence appears to have given some serious thought to marrying Richard. There was certainly a match, both socially and intellectually. Richard would read poems to Florence written by the Bronte sisters, whose work Florence admired. His support of women's rights and his empathy and concerns towards the Irish potato famine, which had started the previous year, likely endeared her to him. But it was not to be. Florence remained unmarried. Marriage was not for her. Despite her rejection, Florence clearly had a profound impact on Richard, so much so that he named his daughter after her. Ever since she first arrived in England as a baby, Florence's health was poor. In the autumn of 1847, her health became worse, and her aunt May got a doctor to assess her. His diagnosis was depression of the spirits. This was most likely to have come from Florence's chronic boredom with domestic life as the doctor himself likely recognised when he prescribed that she should do things which made her life interesting and cheerful. As luck would have it, something which would do just that was to present itself to her. In October, Florence was invited to spend the winter in Rome with Charles and Selina Bracebridge, who were close family friends of the Nightingales. Florence's parents took her down to Southampton on the 26th of October and by the evening of the 9th of October, Florence was in Rome. The next day, Florence visited St Peter's and she was surprised by the size of its dome. It was much smaller than she had expected. But she was nonetheless impressed by the iconic church. During her time in Rome, Florence spent a lot of time exploring the history of the city. One day she saw the Roman Forum and crawled around on her knees trying to see the ruins. Florence's trip to Rome was just what the doctor ordered. Her health was improving and her mood was much better. 
It wasn't just exploring the city, however. Whilst Florence was in Rome, a man called Sidney Herbert was also there with his wife. And their meeting was to change the course of Florence's life. Sidney Herbert was an MP who had been the Secretary of War the previous year. He was later to become the Secretary of War again during the Crimean War. Sidney found Florence fascinating and Florence, in turn, had similar admiration for Sydney. Their meeting in Rome was to form the foundation of a friendship that would last many years, and it was important as their continued correspondence would later become instrumental in Florence's impact in the Crimean War and her later public health reforms. There are countless examples of Florence's kindness and caring nature, One such example occurred in February 1848. Florence was at St Peter's when she noticed a young orphan girl. Florence decided to help the girl by arranging for her to go to school and paying for it herself. The school was attached to a convent at the top of the Spanish Steps. Florence paid for five years of education for the girl. Although she didn't have enough money herself to pay straight away, She took funds from her own clothing allowance. During this, Florence had the chance to talk to the nuns at the school. Florence noticed their religious devotion and conversations with the nuns led Florence to complete a 10-day retreat at the convent. During this time, Florence spoke with more nuns and this confirmed her belief that the way she was living at home was no way for her to live. In one conversation with a nun, Florence said that God asked her to surrender her will to all that is on earth. This time at the convent was important for Florence, and she would later reference her time there as being influential in her pursuing nursing and public health. In April, Florence arrived back in England, and her mood was instantly darkened by the monotony of domestic life again. Later that year, Parthenope was told to go to Carlsbad for her health, as Carlsbad had hydrotherapy. When Florence found out about this, she saw her chance for her to learn more about hospitals, as not far from Carlsbad was the Kaiserwerth Hospital. With luck, Florence would be able to persuade her parents to let her go to the hospital while taking Parthenope to Carlsbad but it was not to be. Around the time they were due to go, riots broke out in Carlsbad and the family deemed it was not safe to travel there, so they abandoned their plans. Florence recorded in her diary that the disappointment was almost too much to bear and that she couldn't go on waiting till her situation should change. Luckily, she didn't have to wait long for such a change. In November 1849, Florence set off for a trip to Egypt and Greece, again with the Bracebridges. Florence the Bracebridges and Florence's German maid, called Trout, arrived in Alexandria on the 18th of November. Florence immediately visited the hospital there. She had met some nuns on the train from Paris and they had introduced her to the hospital. 
While in Egypt, they visited Cairo and saw the pyramids. They toured many of the ancient sites of Egypt via a houseboat on the Nile. Florence didn't like everything about Egypt. She was struck by the difference between the majesty and grandeur of the long-gone ancient civilization and the squalid condition of the modern civilization. In her letters, she expresses what is close to disgust with the Egyptian poor. She wanted to help them, but she thought that there was no hope for them, and it would be impossible for her to do any good for them. They taught Egypt for several months. In April, they were back in Alexandria, preparing to leave for Greece, which they arrived at on the 22nd. Florence's desire to care for people and animals was on display again shortly after having arrived in Athens. One day, on a visit to the Acropolis, Florence saw some Greek boys mistreating a baby owl that had fallen from its nest. She immediately put an end to this by buying the owl from them. Florence named her Athena, and the owl was to stay with Florence at all times, riding in her shoulder or sitting in her pocket. There is a drawing of Florence with her owl, which was done by her sister Parthenope, which you can see in the show notes for this episode. On their way back to England, the Bracebridges had planned to go through Germany. Shortly before going back to England, Florence's mood started to darken. She was suffering sleepless nights. The prospect of a return to the boredom of domestic life was evidently weighing her down. Selina Bracebridge resolved to improve Florence's mood by suggesting that, on their way back through Germany, they could stop for a few weeks to allow Florence to study at the Kaiserwerth Hospital. To visit Kaiserwerth was an ambition that, as we know, she had been denied in 1848, but now, in 1850, it was finally happening. On the 31st of July, Florence arrived at the hospital, which, side note, has today been renamed after her. Kaiserwerth was ran by Theodore Fleidner and his wife Caroline. Theodore was not a doctor himself, he was a pastor instead. The Fleidners invited Florence to stay with them at their house for the duration of her visit. She was only to stay for two weeks at Kaiserwerth, but in that time, she managed to work at all the departments of the hospital for at least a few days. Finally, Florence felt she was in the right place in life. Instead of feeling despondent and bored, Florence wrote to her mother, The world here fills my life with interest and strengthens my body and mind. Florence was rising at 5am every morning as to make the most of the little time she had at the hospital. She was learning everything she could. When her time at Kaiserwerth was over and she was back in England at Lee Hurst, Florence had redoubled her efforts to convince her family, particularly her mother, to let her become a nurse. Kaiserwerth had convinced her that this her calling. She also set to work writing up her notes 
on her time at Kaiserwerth, which was to become her first published work, the institution of Kaiserwerth on the Rhine for the practical training of deaconesses. It was published anonymously in the next year, in 1851. Her rediscovered motivation to convince her parents to let her become a nurse led to a tense environment in the family homes. The desire to escape burned in Florence more than ever. But Fanny Nightingale refused to budge. She was not going to have her daughter becoming a nurse. Then in October, Henry Nicholson, who had previously proposed to Florence, died in a freak accident in Spain. Florence visited the Nicholsons in November to pay her respects. The mood was sombre. Florence was starting to lose hope. Perhaps this was brought on by Henry Nicholson's death, or because of her mother's unrelenting stubbornness. But Florence saw no escape from domestic life. She was staying in bed all day. She wrote in her diary that all she desired was unconsciousness, and she had no desire but to die. Early in the new year, Florence found hope again. This time it was in the form of Elizabeth Blackwell. Florence may have met Blackwell before, but they met again in early 1851. Elizabeth Blackwell was the first woman in the United States to graduate from medical school, and she is regarded as the first female doctor from the modern era. Florence and Elizabeth had lots in common. They both wanted to pursue careers in healthcare, and they were both similar ages, with Elizabeth being slightly younger than Florence. Learning about the difficulties Elizabeth had gone through to become a doctor, such as the constant sexism, inspired Florence to want to overcome her difficulties with her family's objections. It may have been because of this renewed energy that Florence was allowed to go to Kaiserwerth again. Parthenope's health was getting worse, and this led to a trip to Germany to visit the spas there, during which time Florence managed to get to Kaiserwerth again. Florence again felt right at home at Kaiserwerth, and she managed to convince her father to let her stay longer this time. During this day, one of the most notable events was Florence being involved in an amputation. She wrote copious notes on this, and this was to turn out to be important knowledge during her time at Scutari. It appears from the letters of this second visit to Kaiserwerth, that Fanny Nightingale was beginning to soften to the idea of Florence becoming a nurse. She was happy to learn how happy and fulfilled Florence was there. In October, Florence met Fanny and Parthenope in Cologne so they could make their way back to England together. In late 1852, Florence had not yet broken free from the life that so bored her. She wanted to form her own nursing institution. Selina Bracebridge wrote in a letter to Florence's parents that they should give her an annual allowance of £300 in order to allow her to pursue her nursing experiment. And she said that this was the penalty 
that her parents must pay for having a child of such power and genius. By now, Florence was confident in her skill as a nurse and her knowledge of healthcare. She thought that the state of nursing at the time left a lot to be desired. The nurses at the time were from the poorer sections of society. They were not well trained and aside from the Catholic nuns, were known to be drunk whilst working. Florence's vision was to improve this. She wanted to teach and train nurses. She recognised, however, that starting her own institution from scratch was unlikely to succeed. Not long after, in early 1853, Florence was approached by Lady Canning, who was on the committee of a small charitable institution which provided care for sick women. Selina Bracebridge had heard that the institution was looking for a superintendent and therefore she passed Florence's name to the committee. Florence was in Paris at the time, visiting the medical institution there. She was extremely interested in the position and she and Lady Canning corresponded back and forth for several months before in April Florence accepted the position. She had only accepted the position when finally, after years, her parents relented and gave her permission to live her own life. It was her father who had made the decision. He had decided to let Florence become a nurse and he would give her a yearly allowance of £500. Both Fanny and Parthenope were furious about this decision and it appears that William Nightingale had retreated to the Athenaeum, the private members club to which another of our podcast subjects was also a member, Charles Darwin. Fanny and Parthenope's opposition nearly saw to it that Florence's offer was revoked. Some of the committee members had been suspicious of Florence. They thought her desire to leave home as a woman of her standing was strange. Marianne Nicholson, Florence's cousin, had relayed to the committee Fanny and Parthenope's outrage at Florence's role. This led the committee to send Florence a letter withdrawing their offer, with the reason that she clearly didn't have her parents' permission. This was quickly rectified by William Nightingale. After he found out about this, he wrote the committee a letter stating that Florence did have his permission. Florence's offer was then reinstated. Given her income from her father, Florence had accepted the position with no salary. The first responsibility Florence had in her new role was to lead and organise the move of the institution to a new location at 1 Upper Harley Street in London. The institution was not large, at most it could house 27 patients at once, and before Florence arrived it was not well managed. Florence ran a tight ship. She carefully saw to all the runnings of the institution, ensuring it was clean and well ventilated, and keeping a close watch on the expenses. Word about Florence's leadership and management of the institution quickly spread. She had been approached by King's College Hospital and asked to become the superintendent of nurses there 
and lead a similar but larger reorganisation. After less than a year at the institution, it was becoming clear to Florence that this role was not enough to satisfy her grand ambitions. There wasn't going to be much of a chance to do the scale of good she wanted to do. And there were few opportunities to teach nurses, which was one of her ambitions. She handed in her notice that she would be leaving in three to six months. In that same month of August 1854, there was the worst cholera outbreak London had ever seen, in which over 500 people died in 10 days. Florence immediately took temporary leave from Upper Harley Street to volunteer at Middlesex Hospital in order to help the victims of the outbreak. It's reported that during this time, she went two nights without sleep. During her time at Upper Harley Street, she had started visiting other hospitals, gathering information about the state of nursing in them. She had noted in a letter to her father of the bad morals and manners of the nurses at the Grey's Inn Hospital and of the drunkenness of the nurses at the Westminster Hospital. She was planning to use this information to build a case to set about improving nursing with her leading the training of nurses. These plans were put on hold, however, as in March 1854, Britain had joined the Crimean War by declaring war on Russia. Florence had been paying attention to the deployments of the war, and in particular, the subpar care of the wounded soldiers. In October, Florence returned from Leehurst where she had been spending some time. She was returning in order to help with the Crimean War. In no time, she organised a small band of nurses and secured funding for them from Lady Maria Forrester with the intention of heading out to Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul. There were just two things that stood in the way of this noble plan. The first was that Florence needed her parents' permission to go to Turkey and help the wounded soldiers. And second, she would need the permission of the army officers in charge. To help her with her parents, Florence asked Selina Bracebridge to help persuade them to let her go. To help with the army, Florence asked her friend Sidney Herbert to help. At this point, Sidney was the Minister for War, so he was well placed to help. It just so happens that at the same time Florence wrote to Sydney about her plans, Sydney had written to Florence to ask her to lead a group of nurses out in Turkey. Florence had also written to Dr Andrew Smith in the army, and he had gave her a letter of authorization to go out to Skatari. Things moved fast. By the 18th of October, Sidney Herbert had presented Florence and the plan to the government cabinet, where Florence and the plan received unanimous approval. Sidney Herbert's house at 49 Belgrave Square was used as an office to organise the recruitment of nurses and to plan for the journey. 
Selena Bracebridge, Mary Stanley, Sydney's wife, Liz, and Florence's sister, Parthenope, were all engaged to help with the recruitment effort. Florence's original plan of her and three nurses had rapidly expanded. The plan was now to have much more following Sydney's intervention. She ended up taking 38. On the 21st of October 1854, they were about to depart England, and Sydney Herbert gave a speech to the nurses in which he instructed them all to obey Florence. This was only 11 days after Florence had returned from Lee Hurst with the idea. In that short time, she had organised a small army of nurses to head out to war. By the 25th of October, they had sailed to Marseille, where they stopped for a few days. Florence used this time to stock up on supplies, including buying iron beds for the hospital. Two days later, they boarded the Vectis, a steam-powered paddleboat headed for Malta and then to Constantinople. The ship hit rough seas and Florence and some of the other nurses were confined to their bunks with seasickness. By the 4th of November, they arrived in Constantinople. As soon as they arrived, they received word of the calamitous Battle of Balaclava and that at least 400 wounded soldiers were headed to the hospital at Scutari. Florence found the hospital to be in a dire state. Even before the wounded from the Battle of Balaclava were to arrive, the hospital was overcrowded, dirty and filled with overworked staff. It wasn't just the hospitals that the army was doing a bad job with managing. They botched the organisation of the wounded soldiers from the Battle of Balaclava, leaving many of them waiting on their ship for three days. To make matters worse, Florence and her party weren't exactly welcomed with open arms. While they had come at the request of the Minister for War, many of the army's medical staff treated the nurses with hostility because they were women. Some even refused to have them on their wards. But nevertheless, Florence set to work. Her first priority was to clean the hospital. She had the nurses scrub the walls and the floor of the hospital. And Florence organised the opening of a laundry. Clean clothes and bedsheets were hard to come by. She had also cut her hair short to prevent lice and because she didn't have time for long hair. The living conditions of Florence and the other nurses left a lot to be desired. Dr Duncan Menzies, the chief medical officer at Scutari, had set them up in the northwest tower of the hospital. There were as many as 12 nurses to a single small room, and they weren't well protected from the weather. When the wind was strong, the roof would lift, and there were constant water leaks. The poor condition of the building also made it difficult to achieve Florence's goal of cleanliness as in certain areas, scrubbing the floor was impossible as it was made of rotten wood. Very quickly, Florence assumed responsibility for a number of other smaller hospitals outside the main one at the Scutari barracks. 
her meticulous organisation improved the running of the hospital. It was reported that she had personally gone round all of the beds with a piece of chalk and numbered them so they could better keep track of things. The sheer number of patients that were arriving at the hospitals was staggering. On the 12th of November, 700 wounded soldiers arrived, and a few days later, another 800 showed up. Florence wrote how they would almost get no notice that more wounded were showing up. While it was intense, and the sufferings of the men that Florence witnessed were an appalling horror, Florence had finally found a purpose and could see the good she was doing. In December, however, the strain of working at the hospital was starting to take its toll on Florence. She had become very thin. Florence was originally apprehensive about taking 38 nurses with her, as she thought a smaller number would be more efficient and less trouble. Sidney Herbert had arranged another party of around 40 nurses to arrive at Scutari, led by Mary Stanley, which panicked Florence because there was simply no space for them. It would be a nightmare. But it was also an assault on Florence's authority at Scutari, as Mary Stanley had been told to report to Dr Cumming and not to Florence. Florence also thought that Mary Stanley had betrayed her with this action. Florence wrote a letter to Sidney Herbert berating him for doing this, and she offered a resignation and instructed Herbert to find a replacement for her. In the meantime, she would continue to discharge her duties. A few days later, on the 21st of December, there was a meeting between Florence, Mary Stanley, Dr Cumming and Mr Bracebridge, during which Florence resigned her position and said that Mary should take her place. Some biographers have argued that this was a strategy by Florence to undo any potential authority Mary had, as Florence knew Mary to be less capable than she. Mary broke down in tears at the suggestion and didn't take over the position which left Florence in place. So if this was a strategic play, it worked. There were constant problems to deal with at Scutari. One of the biggest was getting supplies for the hospital. It seemed that the army played a role in this difficulty. Florence had complained in a letter to Sidney Herbert about the lack of mops, scissors, basins and towels amongst other essential items. Florence begged Sydney to circumvent the official procedure and just send the things direct from London. She also enlisted the help of many others. The Times newspaper had been reporting on Florence ever since she left London in October and it had organised a fund to help her with her cause and she used this fame to help her get supplies to the hospital. The famous image of Florence Nightingale is the lady with the lamp, and this idea comes from her time at Scutari. During her nightly rounds of the wards, she would carry a lamp. Soldiers under her care were reported as feeling gratitude at the sight of her, 
It was in an etching in the Illustrated London News on the 24th of February that first depicted Florence as the lady with the lamp. Interestingly, despite its endurance, there is an inaccuracy in the etching and many of the images that followed it. In the drawing, Florence is holding an Arabian-style lamp. But in reality, she had a Turkish-style lamp, which has an accordion-like cover, which is illuminated from a candle within. It wasn't until 1857 that the phrase Lady with a Lamp was popularised by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem Santa Philomena. On the 16th of February 1855, following Florence's earlier pleas for the British government to help with the dire state of the hospitals in Scutari, the government war office enlisted the help of the great engineer Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who we've covered on this podcast, to come up with a solution. Isambard's solution was to design a prefabricated hospital that would have 1,000 beds and could be shipped to Crimea on five ships. For the design of the hospital, Isambard had used France's principles of hospital design. The hospital was called Renkoy Hospital, and the speed with which it was developed and sent to Crimea was staggering. By May the same year, the hospital was there. The biggest causes of death in the Scutari Hospital were from preventable diseases such as cholera and dysentery. In fact, it was a factor of over 10 deaths compared to those from battle wounds. To this end, March 1855 saw the largest decline in deaths at the hospital, because the sewers beneath the hospital had been pumped out and cleared. There had been a dead horse blocking them, and they were overflowing. This work was undertaken by the Sanitary Commission, who arrived in Scutari on the 4th of March 1855. They described Florence's hospital as scrupulously clean inside. But the sewers were another matter. In May, Florence became critically ill, and she herself had to be nursed by Eliza Roberts. She was suffering from hallucinations, and it wasn't certain that she would recover. By late May, she was considered better, but she wasn't completely healed. There were some who wanted her to leave in order to rest and recover, but Florence refused. She thought that it would all fall apart without her. She ended up in a small house near the hospital. In August, Florence was working at Scutari again, but she was still experiencing symptoms and had shaved her head to deal with the overheating she was feeling from her illness. In the summer of 1855, what can only be described as Florence Nightingale mania took over Britain. The Times had been reporting about her since she departed London in 1854, and more and more stories about Florence were arriving at England's shores in the letters of soldiers from Crimea. Songs were starting to be written about her. The most popular of these was Nightingale in the East. Towards the end of 1855, in November, Queen Victoria sent Florence a golden brooch designed by Prince Albert, in recognition of her work during the war. 
Along with the brooch, Queen Victoria sent Florence a letter in which she said how much she admired Florence and how much she was looking forward to meeting her when Florence came back to England. The following March, Florence had made history by becoming the first woman to be honoured in the general orders. She had come from open hostility from the army when she arrived in November 1854, to being honoured by them in March 1856. Two weeks after this, on the 30th of March, the Treaty of Paris was signed and the Crimean War was officially over. Florence's tenure at Scutari saw the number of deaths fall from 40% of admissions to 2% of admissions, because most of the deaths were attributable to diseases as opposed to injuries sustained in the course of war. Florence's work in organisation and cleanliness played a key role in reducing this number, although perhaps the biggest factor was the cleaning of the sewers by the Sanitary Commission. A few months later, on the 7th of August, Florence arrived at the Watt Stanwell train station in Derbyshire and made the one-mile journey to Lee Hurst by foot. Her arrival was a surprise to her parents and sister. Queen Victoria finally got her wish to meet Florence on the 21st of September. Along with Prince Albert, Queen Victoria met Florence at Balmoral. In the meeting, Florence recounted her experiences in the Crimean War, but Florence did not intend to use this meeting for mere social pleasantries. She intended to seek the Queen's assistance in arranging much-needed army reforms. Queen Victoria agreed to help, and to that end, she helped start a royal commission and arranged a meeting between Florence and Lord Panmore, who was Secretary of State for War at the time. Lord Panmore was originally resistant to a meeting with Florence about army reform, but after the Queen got involved, he soon agreed. In the meeting, however, Florence quickly won him over to her cause. Lord Panmore wanted to know what she suggested, so he requested she write a report with recommendations. The report Florence wrote was testament to her industriousness. It was entitled Notes on Matters Affecting the Health, Efficiency and Hospital Administration of the British Army and it was over 800 pages long. A few weeks after this meeting on the 1st of November 1856, Florence took up residence in the Burlington Hotel in London. She was to live here in solitude for the next five years. By February of the next year, Lord Panmore had yet to issue the royal warrant for the Royal Commission into Army Reform that Florence wanted. This much annoyed Florence, and to speed things up, she said she would make public her 800-page report, which was only ever intended to be confidential. It took until May the 5th for Lord Panmore to finally issue the Royal Warrant, which started the Royal Commission. In order to effectively communicate the problems that needed fixing, Florence needed to represent the numbers of deaths in a way that would be easily understood. To do this, 
she developed a new statistical diagram. That diagram today has a number of names, including coxcombs, rose diagrams, and polar area diagrams. In August, Florence had a sudden worsening of her health, with similar symptoms to what she had the year previously in May. Following this worsening of her health, Florence kept herself more isolated in her rooms at the Burlington. She would have visitors, but she would only see them one at a time and only following her invitation. The isolation gave her time to work. She would spend many of the next few years of her life in a bed-bound state. Towards the end of 1857, it was thought that Florence did not have long left. Her illness was accompanied by depression, and Florence was preparing for death. But despite this gloomy outlook, she still continued to work from her bed on the reforms she so wanted to see. Her influence and ability to affect change was such that her room in the Burlington became known as the Little War Office. In 1859, Florence again made history when she became the first woman to be elected to the Royal Statistical Society. During this period in the Burlington, Florence wrote notes on nursing, which was published in January 1860. Immediately upon being published, it sold 15,000 copies, which led to continual reprints for the rest of Florence's life. Towards the end of the Crimean War, Florence's popularity in Britain was immense. She was viewed as a heroine and a national hero. This led to a widespread national appeal for funds and donations in her honour. People from all over Britain contributed. Many of the soldiers who had been in Florence's care contributed a day's pay. This was called the Nightingale Fund. Just over £44,000 was collected, which is the equivalent of a few million in today's money. By 1860, Florence had decided what to do with the money. She would use it to set up a school to train nurses. And she opened the Nightingale School of Nursing at St Thomas's Hospital in London in June of that year. Later that same year, in December, Sidney Herbert was diagnosed with Bright's disease. And in April of next year, Queen Victoria offered Florence an apartment within Kensington Palace. But Florence refused this offer, as the Burlington Hotel was closer to Westminster, for the rare occasions when she ventured out. In May, Sidney Herbert's condition was getting worse. Florence was attempting to get his help in reforming the war office, as she was worried that if this wasn't reformed, then her reforms, introduced as part of the Royal Commission, wouldn't stick. On August 7th, 1861, Sidney Herbert died after getting progressively weaker. Florence was unable to attend his funeral, but she was deeply saddened by his death. Florence moved out of the Burlington in October 
and moved to 32 South Street. And then in December, her own poor health got worse, which led her once more to prepare for death. But she did not die in 1861. Instead, she carried on her work. During the 1860s, she was mainly focused on health reforms in India. She studied the numbers about mortality rates of the British Army in India, and she wrote a detailed report outlining the causes of the high mortality rates. 69 per 1,000. She identified, among other causes, poor sanitation, contaminated water, and overcrowding to be responsible. From this study of the British Army in India, Florence became concerned about the health of the civilian population in the country. She thought that her original findings would generalise. They did. She campaigned for health reforms in India and was instrumental in the design of new legislation to promote better public health. In 1874, Florence published her report, Life or Death in India, in which she showed the effects of poor sanitation on public health through data and statistics. In 1862, St Thomas's Hospital, where the Nightingale School of Nursing was located, was forced to move because of railway works. This led to the design of a new hospital which Florence played a key role in. Ten years later, around the time she was working on her report on India, the newly designed and constructed St Thomas's Hospital was opened by Queen Victoria. Today, the hospital is still there, and it also houses the Florence Nightingale Museum. Florence remained interested in solving the public health problems in India. In the 1870s, India suffered a great famine. Florence had studied this and analysed the data. She thought that the official statistics about the famine were wrong. They said there had been around 1.2 million deaths as a result of the famine. But Florence said it was more like 5 to 6 million. And Florence's figure was regarded as more accurate. In fact, it said that Florence had more data about this than the British and Indians combined. In January 1880, Florence's mother, Fanny Nightingale, died. When organising her mother's estate, Florence found that Fanny had kept Florence's sash from when she was in Scutari. Florence's own health at this point was still not good, but it was showing signs of improvement, and she was no longer bedbound. Ten years later, in 1890, there was a scandal about some of the veterans of Crimea, when it transpired that some of them were destitute. A fund was set up to help these men. In order to raise awareness and funds, Florence was asked to record a voice message for them on Thomas Edison's phonograph. The recording still exists to this day, but it's faint to hear because it was recorded on wax cylinders. Florence's later years were marked by continuing work with declining health. 
1896, she became bedbound again. In 1907, Florence was awarded the Order of Merit. She became the first woman in history to receive this honour. A few years later, on August 13th, 1810, Florence passed away peacefully in her sleep. Because of her outstanding contribution to public health, the offer was fielded to bury Florence in Westminster Abbey, along with other British icons such as Charles Darwin and Isaac Newton. This offer was declined, however, and she was instead buried at St Margaret's Church in East Wellow, in Hampshire, not far from Emberley Park, where Florence grew up. Today, Florence's influence is still being felt, and her legacy still endures. Her ideas about the design of hospitals are as valid today as they were in Florence's day. During the Covid pandemic, the UK created a series of pop-up hospitals, all of which were named after her. New nurses today take a modified version of the Nightingale Pledge, which itself is a modified version of the Hippocratic Oath when they become nurses. Florence was the first woman other than royalty to have a statue created in her honour in London and she was the first woman other than the Queen to be featured on British banknotes. Despite not being buried there, there is an annual service at Westminster Abbey in Florence's honour. In a 2002 poll by the BBC, Florence Nightingale was featured in the list of the 100 Greatest Britons. One of the biggest lessons to learn from Florence Nightingale is the importance of perseverance, even in the face of insurmountable obstacles. Florence had to face her family's rejection of her becoming a nurse. She had to face hostility from the army's medical staff in Scutari because she was a woman. She faced chronic illness that left her bedbound for most of her life. And yet, despite all this, we still remember her to this day. She didn't just become a nurse, she founded the practice of modern nursing. And the highest distinction modern nurses can achieve today is the Nightingale Medal. She didn't just overcome the army's hostility at Scutari. She became the first woman to be honoured by the military by receiving the Order of Merit. She didn't just accept her bedbound state, she used her fame and influence to shape the direction of public health policy from her bed. And to learn perseverance from Florence Nightingale, we also have to recognise that she didn't just forge ahead with certainty. She had her doubts. She doubted that she would ever escape her domestic life. These brought her to such lows that she wished nothing more but to die. But she didn't let the barriers in her way or her doubts hold her back for too long. She became the Lady with the Lamp. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Enduring Lives podcast. If you want to see the other episodes or see the show notes for this episode, head over to EnduringLives.com. 
And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe if you want to get the latest episodes when they're released. I've been your host, Shane Lee. Thank you for listening. Until next time.